On August 11th, we concluded a verse-by-verse study through the book of Genesis, which began in November of 1997. Now, we stopped at several places. For those that weren't here through all of that, be, uh, be at peace. We did stop at several places along the way and uh, looked at various topics, even worked our way through the entire books of Daniel and Ephesians in that five-year stretch of time. But I counted it up, I think somewhere in the range of 70 Sunday morning sermons we took to make our way inch by inch through the book of Genesis, the equivalent of about one year and four months of Sundays. We invested ourselves in this book as a church. What a journey it has been. I can say that this study has changed my understanding of the Bible more than any single study I've ever undertaken to this point in my life. So when we consider the length of time that we've invested in studying this book, almost a year and a half over a five-year period, and when we consider the profound challenge that this book has been to many of us week in and week out, it seemed downright anticlimactic to end a few weeks ago with the last verses of chapter 50 and to just walk away and never say anything more. I'm resisting here this morning the temptation to just start at Genesis 1-1 and do it all again. <laughs> I would love to, uh, but we need to pursue a more balanced diet than that. But I would like in the next couple of weeks to take a jet tour over the text of Scripture. Knowing that it's been five years, knowing a number of you are here that were not here at the beginning, and also just the length of time and the many other topics that we considered as we took uh, strategic breaks, I think it might be wise for us to do that. And as we do, let's remember that the book of Genesis is the seed from which the entire Bible sprouts. It forms the main gear into which the teeth of all other books of the Bible mesh. So Genesis lays down for us several thematic pathways along which the rest of the Bible takes its journey. It is, in fact, a seed. And from the seed, the tree of Scripture grows. Not only is this book foundational to our understanding of the rest of Scripture, it is foundational to all that God's people must believe in distinction from our world. It is no twist of fate that every major theme of the book of Genesis is violently opposed by our world's thinking. Our culture is at direct odds with the instruction of Genesis. To believe Genesis is to be a holy person. What I mean by holy is certainly pure, but I speak of holiness in its broader sense. That is, in the sense of distinctiveness. To believe Genesis is to be a holy person. What I mean is that if you draw your worldview from Genesis, you will interpret life very differently than an unbelieving world that surrounds you. In fact, if you belong to God, there, these ideas are, I would suggest, your very life. Remember how Moses put it to the Israelites? He had recounted the law in the book of Deuteronomy, and he said to them at the close of that recounting, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day so that you may command them to your children to obey carefully all the words of this law. They are not just idle words for you, they are your life. Words of life. By them, said Moses, you will live. And by these words I trust 
that you are living. There are themes in the book of Genesis in particular, as we review this book, which then play out throughout the rest of the Bible, and I trust that you are living by them. That they help you understand how to perceive this world, how to live in light of it. They're not idle words. These words are our life. So, as we take this quick overview, I hope you will drive the stakes of your theology deeper into these major themes. Our first theme is the theme of creation. That runs from chapter 1 through the end of chapter 2, the theme of creation. Notice Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. God cuts right to the heart of the matter with the first verse of the world's bestseller. There's no attempt to rationally prove the existence of God, nor anything like the pagan concept that God was created, that the gods were created, and matter was eternal. We learn right out of the gate that the eternal, infinite, triune God sets time in motion when He created all things out of nothing. These very first lines of Genesis form a wedge point. And hitting that wedge point, right as we open the text of Scripture, There is divided to either side those who believe and those who do not believe, Genesis 1.1. If you believe these words just as they are, you will spend the rest of your life seeking to live in their light. If you do not believe these words just as they are, you will spend the rest of your life trying to prove them wrong. That is, is it not, much of the agenda of the evolutionists, spending their entire life saying Genesis 1-1 is wrong. But that is also the agenda of the polytheist, of the atheist, the pantheist, the materialist, the naturalist, the deist, the humanist. God did not create, they say, at the heart of their thinking, and they live their entire lives in active opposition to this first verse of Scripture. In fact, every human philosophy which is not distinctly biblical crumbles as a unit before Genesis 1.1. It's amazing, though it shouldn't be. We know the ability, the capacity of our Creator with words, but in this one simple sentence, He crumbles all human philosophies right at the gate of Scripture. As Morris explains, dualism is a summary of polytheism, which is the popular expression of pantheism, which presupposes materialism, which functions in terms of evolutionism, which finds its consummation in humanism, which culminates in atheism. They all hang together because they all deny, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. How much is in that phrase? How hard it is to stay off of it. But let me quickly say, remember, in pagan thinking, the Greeks believed that the universe had no beginning, and in consequence, they were compelled to say that it had no ending. Human history was thus seen as a swirling, chaotic, ultimately meaningless ordeal, and we've not advanced anywhere in all of these years of human philosophy past that basic concept in our secular world today. But Genesis says that human history is progressive. Where does God start the phrase of script, the first phrase of Scripture? Where does He start? In the beginning. It draws attention to time. And it draws attention to progressive human history. When there is an in the beginning, 
or as we might say it in the fairy tale way, once upon a time means that there's a story to tell. There's something to be said. In the beginning assumes an end, a destination. And in fact, that is, there is one, as we know. The heavens and the earth he creates in the beginning. The heavens and the earth, we have here the totality of the universe expressed in these two contrasting but connected thoughts. Space, probably including angels, as these creatures are like space, non-corporal realities, and matter, including, I would assume, energy. Human language would be hard-pressed to find a simpler way to express all that our existence entails. We have right here time in the beginning, space, the heavens, mass, the earth. Now the earth, of course, is just a speck in the physical universe, but there's a purpose here. This is not a science book as such. It is a book to speak to us about who God is. It's a message. And so earth sets itself out, God sets it out here as the place of redemptive communication and action. God creates the heavens and the earth. In verse 2 we read, Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Remember here it is important that we take this as a parenthetical statement. There is, for the Hebrew scholars, a vav disjunctive, which simply we could say is a parenthetical thought. Verse 2 does not speak of a pre-existent world, but is a parenthetical thought. God creates time, space, matter. Having created that, it is all in a chaotic state with the Spirit of God hovering over this chaotic condition. We then enter at verse 3 into the creative week. And as we go through, it's very important for us to consider the word day. You'll notice that at the, at the end of verse 4, the first day. At the end of verse 8, the second day. At the end uh, of verse 13, the third day. And we work our way through. The Hebrew word yom, day, can certainly mean more than a 24-hour period of time. But the word day does not stand alone here. You'll notice with each of these phrases of the word day, we have the phrase evening and morning. That phrase, evening and morning, is used a hundred times in the Old Testament. It always refers to a 24-hour period. The word day is qualified by a number over 100 times in the Pentateuch alone. Every time that that happens, we have a literal 24-hour day. So Moses uses both a numerical qualifier and the phrase evening and morning. With each of these days, there is no way in his context prior to watches and understanding of a 24-hour cycle, which is somewhat arbitrary in itself, uh, seeing it as 24 hours, could be called 30 hours or 10 hours if we had chosen to divide time up that way, but obviously he doesn't have that construct. In his day, with his language, there is no better way to say in the Hebrew tongue 24 hours than what Moses has said. Now we can... Uh, people can debate that and talk about it all they'd like, but Moses was talking about 24 hours. I think it's, it comes down to an issue of either he was wrong or he was right. But we have here, beyond that point, an emphasis on God's spoken word. God creates through his speech. And so as the in the beginning dis differentiates the Genesis account from those, pagan those pagans who would emphasize space as opposed to time, 
So we have here a unique emphasis, not on the, not on the forming of a, eternal matter, but rather on God speaking matter into existence one day at a time. First of, <clears throat> excuse me, first of all, in verses 3 through 5, there is the creation of light. We consider there the physical phenomenon, certainly of light, but also the theological implications. Time is emphasized again on the first day over space. As the pagans would emphasize the heavenly bodies, the biblical account emphasizes time. There is no heavenly bodies here reflecting the light. There's just darkness and light, and the darkness and light are set to differentiate time patterns, as we will see as we follow through. Day 2, verses 6 through 8, this expanse between the waters above, this apparently watery canopy above the earth, then there's space, and then there's water on the earth. Then day 3, we see two distinct acts of creation. First of all, water on the dry land gathered on the earth, and secondly, vegetation on that land. We move to day 4, and I'd like, let's look at the overhead chart here as we notice the Creator at work. The first three days are days of creation in the rough. He's bringing into existence these various basic ideas, and now in days four, five, and six, you will see a very clear parallel to days one, two, and three as the Creator completes His roughed-out creative work, as we do. In anything that we build, there is in the building of a house the framing process. And then as the process goes, there is the uh, narrowing in and the refining of that work. And so we see in God's work. Day four, uh, what was day one? Day one was light coming from God. There are no luminaries. Day four, God fills in the details by creating luminaries. Day five, what was day two? The expanse. We're dealing with space here. Day two, he fills the sky with birds and the sea swarms with creatures. Day six, in parallel to day three, there are two acts. Their land is, uh, the land produces animals. Uh, verses 24 through 31 of this first chapter, and there is a second act, and that is the creation of man. So again, as we see those who would speak of theistic evolution, that God uses evolution, there is a God, but He uses evolution to bring the world into existence. There are those who, going through all of these days, try to make them parallel the evolutionary eras or epochs. It never works. You've got birds flying in God's account before you have anything on the land, etc. We have the sun uh, producing photosynthesis after vegetation is put on the it, it, it explodes. It does not work to say that this is an evolutionary construct and that God just guides the evolutionary construct. The second best effort of the theistic evolutionists are those who say, well, God, these are six snapshots thrown arbitrarily on a coffee table in front of you and you're looking at the snapshots. The problem is, as we look through this structure, this is clearly not arbitrary uh, random snapshots thrown on the ground or on the table before us. There's very clearly a pattern here that God follows in the creation of the world. But what we do see very clearly then is that we are not a cosmic accident as day six makes so clear, but we are the pinnacle of the creation, creation week. 
We are not a cosmic accident that crawled out of the primordial ooze and are then supposed to pursue our self-esteem. Imagine that process. But we are rather creators, create creatures made by the Creator. We are like a mirror. We have no inherent worth in ourselves, but we reflect the glories of the Creator who brought us into being. And whenever man rejects his Creator, he severs the root of human dignity and enters onto a destructive path of idolatry and death. But we see in this first chapter of Genesis our Creator's work. And then as we come to chapter 2, we see that God rests. This is not a rest from exhaustion, but a rest from creation which... Uh, does not continue. He is no longer creating. And again, the evolutionary concept is at tremendous odds with this very point, that God, the Creator, rests. Creation is not ongoing. Chapter 2, notice verses 1 through 3. The heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And if if you do have NIV with you and you haven't corrected this, verse 2 of chapter 2, put the word on in place of by. Now, by the seventh day, God had finished his work, but on the seventh day, God had finished his work. I think I know what they're trying to do there, but they they trip over their attempt. They don't want it to be the idea that God's creating on the seventh day, and somewhere on that day, he stops. But it's on that seventh day and the entire seventh day that God rests. Now, isn't that strange? Think of this vast universe, and we don't have the time to go through many of the statistics that we went through as we went through these earlier chapters several years back, but think of the immensity and the intricacies of this universe. And you know what God hallows in all of it? The day that He creates nothing. And in that day of rest, that Sabbath rest, There is not a creator here who no longer works. We know from the book of Colossians that God sustains this universe. We know as we study scripture of his miraculous work that he continues to do things and act in this world. But on this seventh day, God rests not in exhaustion, but he rests hallowing this day that we would focus on the creator above all and not the creation. At verse 4, we enter onto a second account, a more detailed account of God's most profound creation, which fits perfectly in with chapter 1. Let's, uh, why don't we go to that uh, outline here, and we can have the lights back on just to help guide us through this. But uh, first of all, we're looking here under this main head of creation. Notice in your text, Genesis 2, verse 4, and following through to verse 25, we have this second account. God's, God creates man. That is reasserted there in verse 7 of chapter 2. This is not a competing account, but this is rather a uh, parallel account that hones in on God's, most, uh, on God's greatest creative act, which is the creation of man. We notice that God designs human civilization. Verse 8 and following. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. We can go, you can uh, skim your way down through. We have a description of the Garden of Eden. So God provides the habitat. Secondly, he commissions man's work. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. God, before the fall, remember that, all of you who are weary about going to work tomorrow, before the fall, God set man in the garden to work. We were made to work. It is a good thing to work. 
This is part of God's plan for us, His commission to us. Verse 15. Then he establishes human ethics, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Who's telling whom what? God stands forward as the one who will say, this is right for you, my creatures, and this is wrong for you, my creatures. He steps forward. He does not put it into their hands and say, you determine for yourself what is right for you as a couple or as individuals. No, God in his love stands forward and says, you will not do this. There's a universal yes, a singular no, but God establishes human ethics and we learn from this that we are to turn to him for what is right and wrong in all things. He creates here the first family, verses 18 through 25. We're familiar with this passage of Scripture through many different applications, but we remember very clearly that God establishes Adam as head, Eve as his suitable helper, and this relationship, husband and wife, as the central relationship in the family. We find here then God's creative design. It is a perfect design. The world was not flawed. The world was right. And what has happened is that through twisted means, through sin, mankind has corrupted the original plan of God. But our joy and our privilege as God's people is to go to this account and to ask our Creator, how are we to live? He lays it out here in chapters 1 and 2. That, of course, as we come to chapter 3, is not the whole story. We come to that second major head. There is creation. There is a theme. There is a path that the Genesis lays down that all of Scripture will take us on, that path of creation. We come then secondly to our understanding of the fall. Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we have a perfect world. Adam and Eve have everything. Communion with God, sinless relationship, perfect environment. All is there, but they are tempted to turn from God, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. We have the serpent, an animal over which Adam and Eve were to rule. That is indicating what again? It's indicating they're not overpowered by Satan. We realize Satan inhabits the snake, but Adam and Eve perhaps don't understand that at this point. They've seen a lot of wonderful things in God's creation, a talking animal, not necessarily out of routine or something unusual. It's, everything's unusual to them. They're learning, but they just assume that this is a snake. They're not beat up by Satan here. An animal that they are to rule over tempts them. And the serpent, using this pattern, first of all, distorts the Word of God. Eve, talk to me here. Did God really tell you you can't eat from any tree in this garden? I mean, there's a lot of good-looking fruit around here. You can't eat from any tree? He distorts the command of God. Makes it sound narrow and exclusive when it was not. What God had said was every tree, Eve explains, we can eat from every tree. It's just one. Distortion. Then Satan moves to denial. You will not die. God's telling he is lying. He's pulling one off on you. You're not going to die. You'll get away with this. It'll be okay. And so we hear those very same thoughts all the time in our world. 
That leads to deception, verse 5. You're going to know good from evil, Satan says to the woman. He does not tell her in his deceptive ways that she is going to understand evil in a way that God never will. And that is through experience. But he tempts, he distorts the truth, he denies the truth, he deceives, and she considers, verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. In a convoluted, twisted way, the animal reigns over the woman who reigns over her husband. He was to communicate to her and to explain to her what God's will was. He obviously had done that. He takes no leadership, but there with her falls together with her. She is deceived. He is in utter rebellion, and they fall together in the garden. The consequences, verse 7, are shame. They sense that they're not right with God. And that leads to a second response of avoidance, verses 8 through 13. They avoid, first of all, in verses 8 through 10, the Lord Himself. God has to call out in verse 9, where are you? He has to find them, and in His grace He does. But they also avoid their responsibility, verses 11 through 13. Adam points to the woman that God had given him. The woman points to the serpent. They rationalize the situation. Can you imagine this? They rationalize the situation so that the criminal becomes the victim. We have institutions that do that this day, don't we? It's the way it is. The criminal becomes the victim. That leads to God's curse. The curse on the serpent, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, and most significantly to us here, verse 15, he says, and let me say this first of all, there is a physical curse and a relational curse on all three. The physical curse on the serpent, you will crawl on your belly. The relational curse is what? Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will crush his heel. This pr prophetic word from God, there will be a relational animosity between the people of God and the people of the serpent. Not talking about literal snakes and not talking about Satan's demons, but there will come an ultimate crisis where there will be from the offspring, these two people, a single representative that will come to an ultimate contest. And there will be a crushing blow both ways. One on the head, one on the heel. The woman, physical curse is what? Nothing wrong, nothing evil about childbearing. But the physical curse is it will be in pain. The relational curse, verse 16b, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Basically, I believe laying out there the idea that you will find it by nature. From now on, there will be a desire to rule over your husband. To second guess his leadership. To want to take the reins from him. But he's going to rule over you. Not in a beautiful way but in a harsh way. And that has epitomized in many generations the relationship between men and women. This struggle for women to take the place of men and the unloving and harsh treatment of men toward women. It's part of the curse that would come. There'd be a tug of war now between her and her husband rather than a beautiful relationship as God intended it. The husband, the man, Adam, he is cursed physically. What is the curse? Not work, but the curse is that the work will be hard. 
And what is the relational curse? A return to the earth in death. That relationship was described in chapter 2 and verse 7 that Adam is the child of the ground. And now he, as the child of the ground, will return not in life, but he will return to the ground in death. His relationship to this earth will be changed, not as infinite or never dying master, but now he will return and be buried in the ground. And it is one of the harshest realities of life as we place in our culture, in a coffin, in a hole, a body, and then cover it over with the earth from which it came. A horrible scene. But what does it say to us? There is a path that is laid down here for us to understand and to follow through the rest of Scripture and in our Christian lives. What is the cause of human malady? How do we fix human suffering and human difficulty? We all, as God's people, are influenced by the thoughts and the laws and the ideas of our culture and our world as to how to fix the human condition. Nobody really argues that it's not there. We realize all around the board to the absolute, completely committed atheist, I don't believe there is such a thing, but let's assume that there is for the moment, they know the world's broken. They know there's something very wrong. There are some who through some philosophical machinations get to the point where they say that it's not really all real. But even that is just a way of dealing with the pain. To pretend it isn't there. We know this world's broken. But what is your answer to its solution? Do you follow the plan of God and do you consistently apply that plan in your daily lives, in your own daily struggle? The problem, people of God, is sin. We see that that is the problem. The problem is that we take the Creator's laws, we take the Creator's will, we set it aside, and we do something else. We go our own way, and we do our own thing. As we deal with those issues of life that are painful, that are hard, and where we are out of line, the issue is sin, and the answer is repentance. And we find that all laid out here for us in these first pages of Scripture, and the Bible never conflicts with that theme. We look then at hope and faith, chapter 3 and verse 20. Chapter 3.20, Adam named his wife Eve because she could, would become the mother of all the living. There's hope there in that new name, Eve meaning life. This naming is highly significant as it always is in the book of Genesis. As Adam named the animals, now he names his wife, gives her a new name, and names her Eve, the mother of all living. I believe that it is a direct response to the prophecy of 3.15. There will be a child born to this woman who will crush the serpent's head. There's a new name, a new covering, verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so we come to verse 23 and a new Habitat. Removed from the Garden of Eden, uh, mankind is now left to carve out a life in a fallen and cursed world. Creation, fall, major themes that the Scriptures lay out from the outset, which are developed through the remainder of Scripture. Are they themes that operate biblically and honorably in your life as a child of God? They are essential, they're necessary, and they are finely nuanced. 
By that I mean they work themselves out in the nitty-gritty of everyday relationships and everyday circumstances. Do we really think that God is the creator and the arbitrator of human ethics? Do we really hear His voice? And do we follow that voice? Do we truly realize that the sin is the problem between us and God in all human malady? We're tested as to whether we believe these truths every day of our lives. Creation, fall. A third major theme is two peoples. Beginning at chapter 4 and verse 1, down through verse 16, we find the initial conflict between these two peoples, the seed or the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. As we follow these themes, they will help us as we interpret the remainder of the book, but it's very clear that that is what Genesis is laying out. There are going to be, in this fallen world that God has created, two kinds of people. The initial conflict is seen in that between Cain and Abel. Cain, as we know, chapter 4, kills his brother Abel. He is upset with God. He is jealous of his brother's relationship with the Lord because of his walk in obedience, and he kills his brother Abel. What does God do? Just as he did with Cain's parents, he goes after Cain. He talks to Cain. He questions Cain. He tries to see Cain come to a place of repentance, and what does Cain do? Like his parents before, he resists. And the spiral goes downward, and it is a tremendous passage for us to understand the human condition. As we are met with the Creator's will, and we resist it, there is a spiral that goes downward. We say no to God, which makes it easier to say no again, which, we, which takes us into sin, into further, further depths of it. We see that laid out here for us with Cain. As he rejects the plan of God, he is cursed by God and separated from uh, Adam's extended family by this point. We see this initial conflict then between Cain and Abel. That leads to the subsequent development. Notice verse 17 of chapter 4. We have here now a development of Cain's line and of his village, if you want to call it that, or his city. Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Note that name very carefully. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son Enoch. Now, Enoch has a son by the name of Lamech. And in the development of Cain's line, we see an erection and a population of the city of man. In these verses, verse 17 in particular, verse 18. In that city now, a culture develops. Verse 19, Lamech married two women. Now remember, Lamech is Enoch's son. Lamech marries two women. This has not happened we, apparently uh, to this point in time. He breaks the pattern of Genesis chapter 2. He goes against his creator's law concerning marriage that there will be a man and his helper suitable who will give birth to children, and he takes a second wife. Not only that, but this man boasts, and we will see that in a moment, but first of all, let's look at his children. Verse 20, Ada gave birth to Jabel. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. We have there what? We have husbandry. Then the arts, verse 21, Jubal, who is the, one, the father of those who play the harp and flute. And Zillah, 
We have metallurgy here as he forges all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron, which really messes with an evolutionary view of history. I'll just throw that in. But he's doing bronze and iron together. Um, and then we have, I believe, in verse, the end of verse 22, fashion. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Whenever there's a woman in these genealogies, you have to stop and say, why is a woman mentioned here? Because genealogies flow through the man. I believe she's mentioned here because of her name. Nama means beautiful or delightful or pleasant. It plays very significantly into chapter 6 as we move our way there. What we have here then is a reflection of common grace. Is it wrong to make things out of metal? Is it wrong to play instruments? Is it wrong to be beautiful? Is it wrong to take care of animals? Absolutely not. In God's common grace, what is the line of Cain doing? They're subduing the earth. That's what God called man to do. Fill the earth and subdue it. They're subduing it. They're bringing it under control. They're developing a culture. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with the culture of man is the spirit of man. And we notice that in verses 23 and 24, where Lamech says to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. Now, those are rebellious words from the, sh from the outset. Wives, plural, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Dalich calls this poem an expression of titanic arrogance. What Lamech is saying is, I settle my own accounts. Although the Hebrew leaves some doubt as to the meaning, it's my view that Lamech killed an able-bodied man and then boasts to his wives that if God would have avenged Cain seven times for anyone that killed him, I'm avenged 77 times. The man simply offended me and I took his life. I take care of Lamech. And I take care of Lamech better than God would. As Voss put it, what God had ordained as a measure of protection for Cain is here scorned. And sole reliance placed upon human revenge through the sword. The spirit of Lamech depends upon itself alone. Lamech speaks for the city of man as a self-centered, self-reliant enterprise. But as those boastful, arrogant words echo in our ears, we move to verse 25 of chapter 4, and Adam lays with his wife again, and she gives birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in the place of Abel. There's a lot there. God. Lamech, I don't need God. I settle my own accounts. Eve, Seth, a gift from God. And one who takes, not Cain's place, but Abel's place. Since Cain killed him, Seth also had a son and named him Enosh. Now notice this phrase, at that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. We have the godless line epitomized in Lamech, Enoch's son, and his city as he boasts before his plural wives of murder. In direct contrast, we have Seth taking Abel's place, whom God loved. And what is the issue here, the end of, verse, of, the end of chapter 4, that men began to call on the name of the Lord? And I think what we have here is a reference, in contrast to the fallen line, of individuals who are gathered here for worship and identifying together against the lost world in prayer, in corporate prayer. It is the seed of the church. That is the, the, the beginnings of people meeting together 
around the name of God. It's not a church as such, but it is the beginnings of that thought. Now, as we come to chapter 5, we have an expansion on the genealogy of Seth. Hang with it here a little bit longer. You see, obvious, makes sense, doesn't it, as it's playing out. We've got Lamech and Cain's line. We have Seth now in the godly line, and now a genealogy leading us from Adam to Noah, chapter 5. Chapter 5 is this expanded genealogy of Seth. And as with Lamech and Cain's genealogy, likewise Seth's genealogy fans out at the end to include several children. Do you see that? In Lamech's genealogy, we come in chapter 4, verse 20, you see how several of his children are named, even a, even a woman, even a, a daughter. Now notice at the end of chapter 5, you'll see the genealogy fans out here as well with Noah and his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Moses is doing the same thing with the godly genealogy that he did with Cain's genealogy in the godless line. It's important to note that the brief genealogy of chapter 4 and the lengthy genealogy of chapter 5, I believe, are joined by 426b. In other words, these people banding together for worship, this is them, now here we tell their line or lay out their line. So Cain's line, the distinctive feature is the development of culture with no regard for the glory of God. Seth's line, the distinctive feature is what? It is prayer. It is a relationship with God. Chapter 5 reveals then the lineage of Seth, the people of God. Here's the keys to the genealogy. We won't go through every name, but so-and-so was born, gave birth, had fathered such-and-such a son, and died. That pattern goes all the way through chapter 5. But notice verse 24. Something happens to break the pattern. And that is always intended in a genealogy to get our attention. Why is the pattern broken? We notice in verse 24, Enoch walked with God, then he was no more because God took him. That breaks the pattern, doesn't it? Every, this guy dies, this guy dies, this guy dies. Enoch doesn't die. He walks with God and he's no more. This very unique phrase gets our attention. Now notice also verses 28 and 29. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. It's not an accident. I don't believe that it's just purely coincidental that there's another Lamech. These genealogies notoriously skip generations. They're quite willing to skip generations and names, but there's a reference made here to a Lamech in this godly line, and I think it's for a very specific purpose. As a matter of fact, is it just coincidental that Lamech in Seth's line also issues forth with a poem, as did Lamech in chapter 4 in Cain's line? He lived with Noah and said, he will comfort us. He, I'm sorry, he named his son Noah and said, he, will, he, did, he did live with Noah. When you have a son, you usually live with him. But he named him Noah and said, he will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. That is a tremendously difficult poem to understand, as was Lamech's of Cain's line in chapter 4. But what does seem very clear here is that he acknowledges that God has cursed the world through sin and that there will be a solution. I don't think he ultimately knows what in the world he's saying, probably, but he sees in Noah some type of answer, and in fact there is an answer. Through Noah. Through whom? Through Shem. Through David. To Jesus. I think that's at the heart of this poem, though the man probably does not by any means understand all of that. But he speaks a poem of hope in God and of deliverance. 
So we have two peoples. One in self-reliance, in boastful arrogance, happy with themselves, pleased with themselves, disregarding God, as opposed to a people who seek God in prayer, who know His truth, and who hold to His promise of rescue. Two peoples. Well, at chapter 6, these two peoples converge. And they converge in such a way that breaks the heart of God. Chapter 6 and verse 1, When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal, that is, he is flesh, he's corrupt. His days will be a hundred and twenty years. Verses 1 and 2, we see the sons of God who start marrying for the wrong reasons. And I believe in context that there's only one way to take the sons of God. It's not the majority position among evangelicals, but you're following along here with what Moses is saying. I don't know how else you read it, but to say the sons of God are God's people. They're the Sethites. Notice here that it says that they saw, verse 1, I'm sorry, verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful. Now, those words are very important, and I think they also are intended to catch our attention. We're not talking here, I don't believe, about angels who came down and all of a sudden realized that the women on earth were pretty beautiful. What we have here is that they saw, ra'ah, the Hebrew word, in an emphatic position in the Hebrew text. What did they see? They saw beauty, Hebrew word tov. I don't think it's a coincidence, again, that those very words are used of Eve's temptation. She ra'ah, she saw the fruit, that it was tov, beautiful. And so she took it. What we have here is another temptation, the temptation of the people of God who came from Eve and who are to be God's people, seeing the daughters of men. I don't think the daughters of men is, is a description of any great significance. They just saw women that they saw were attractive and beautiful. Connecting us back again to Nama of chapter 4 and the whole fashion idea. And they chose, and here's the key phrase, verse 2, they chose any of them that they wanted. According to their will, their motivation was sensual pleasure, not godliness. Followed their own will with no regard for God. The result is a marriage, very possibly a polygamy, uh, even polygamy that would have paralleled, paralleled Lamech in 419. But they took any of them that they chose, apparently saying they took numerous wives on the basis of beauty, not on the basis of godliness. How does God respond? My spirit will not always contend with man. 120 years. That doesn't mean people will now start living to about 120 years. They live quite a bit longer than that. And the records show that. What it means is I'm going to give a 120-year period for them to repent. At the end of that 120-year period is the Noahic flood and judgment. All right? Verse 4, then we read, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them, they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Now many have stumbled here to say that these Nephilim, these giants in the land, were the offspring of these two lines, and that usually goes along with the fact that the sons of men were angels. The daughters, or sons of God were angels, and the daughters of men were, 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 were people. 
But you'll notice here the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward. They're not the offspring of these two. They were already there when these two came together. They were there then when they came together. They were there after that time. But the issue here is that they were the heroes of old, the men of renown. Who's the they? It may refer to the Nephilim, but I think it's referring to the offspring of the godly line with the ungodly line. Their children became people of renown. What's going on? The people of God are beginning to look to marriage in a wrong way, and they're beginning to see as important wrong things, such as importance and prominence. The children, the offspring of the sons of God, were beginning to emphasize power, strength, importance. You see, there was a time not so long ago when the people of God gathered for prayer and distinction from the world. Now the people of God, by intermarrying with godless people, are now marching at the head of the parade. And they're power brokers in this world. It's a struggle that Christians continue to face in every generation. We want to be accepted in this world, and so we look for positions of power. We look for positions of leadership, positions of prominence. We want to be at the head of everything. And as we do that, I'm not to say that that's always wrong, but when the spirit's wrong, there's great trouble. And I think that was what the issue was here. The spirit was wrong. What God saw, verses 5 and 6, was how great man's wickedness was on the earth, how it become that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. That's what God saw. What did he decide? This is X-rated material in our world. You don't say verse 7 in this culture. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth. Men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Our God is a God who judges. If your God is a God who only loves and only forgives and only overlooks sin, you don't worship the true God. You don't talk about this in our world. But our God judges sin. And he moves here to judge humanity. Divine judgment comes at chapter 6 and verse 9 with the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. God chooses Noah. But there is a twofold issue here at chapter 6, verse 9, and following all the way through the flood account in chapter 9. We'll skim through that very quickly here, if you'll bear with me just a little longer. But we have, first of all, the destruction of the godless world in the flood. Secondly, the rescue of the faithful through the flood. The very waters that destroy the godless are the very waters that save the righteous Noah and his family. There is a canopy breakup. This water that was above the earth, chapter 7, verses 11 and 12, comes crashing down in the 600th year, 711. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on the day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell on the earth on the and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. This canopy breaks open. The water in the sky, if it all came down at once today, wouldn't make a big difference at all on this earth. Thankfully, we get clumps of it here and there, and we get some good rain. We've had plenty of it this summer, haven't we? It would never flood the world. 
But the canopy above, the waters above, breaking loose, as well as waters from below, exploding up from the ground prior to rain, all of this flooded the entire planet. Verse 18, any doubt about that? The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The water rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 20 feet. Now, almost anyone who doesn't like what the Bible says loves to say this was a local flood. And again, I ask, how can Moses say it any more clearly that this wasn't a local flood? Every mountain on the entire planet to a depth of 20 feet, you cover almost any mountain on this earth to a depth of 20 feet and pretty much the rest of the earth is gone. But it's very clear what he's saying. Now, we understand uh, as far as creation science in this tremendous weight, there is a reason here for very quick, catastrophic sedimentation, for the uplifting of mountains and the decreasing of the ocean basins and the runoff. You can imagine the tremendous rapid effects upon our earth, the uh, glacial uh, formations on the poles immediately and then their eventual uh, retreat which continues. All of these things can be understood in a very rapid, quick period of time, the period of Noah's flood. That being said, let's look at those who are rescued. Noah builds an ark, chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. It is a tre of tremendous size. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. And obviously he gave him many more directions, but it's to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Only in the modern era has a ship been built larger. Now, many have, of course, but not until the modern era was a larger ship seen on Earth. And the engineers look at these proportions and say, you're going to be pretty hard-pressed to find a better proportions for floating. The size of it, understanding the animals that are coming in, understanding that um, reptiles, dinosaurs, would have been taken at small size, not their full-grown size would have easily uh, fit into such a structure and God probably brought some type of stupor over the animals in this tremendous rain, a type of hibernation that permits them to survive this great deluge. And as they come off the ark, chapter 8 and verse 17, we see again a time of God blessing His people. And he says there at the end of verse 17, chapter 8, so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. Echoes of what? Echoes of Genesis. Echoes of Adam and Eve. We have here in a sense with Adam a new, or with Noah, a new Adam. A new covenant is established, a covenant between God and Noah, verses 20 and 21. Noah built an an altar, we see him worshiping as he comes off the ark. The Lord, verse 21, smelled the pleasing aroma and said, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. I will never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have. So a new covenant and a blessing upon this new Adam. Chapter 9 and verse 7 
God establishes a new relationship with him. There will be the eating of meat. There will be again, verse 7, the fruitful increase in number, multiplying on the earth, increasing upon it. Verses 12 and 13 of chapter 9, this is the sign, says God, I will put my rainbow in the sky to remind you that I'll never destroy the earth through a flood again. We then come to the post-flood era, and I'm just about done here. If you bear with me just, just a moment longer. In the post-flood, we have significant features of history. First is what? Probably after Noah's worship of God in the covenant, we have Ham's sin against his father. We don't know exactly what it was, but it involved drunkenness and nakedness, and we see God's people struggling spiritually. But Ham is cursed primarily or particularly his son is cursed Canaan we won't get into why that is but Canaan is cursed and then from that point leaving the ark on Mount Ararat the people of Noah spread off into various directions and we see their lines delineated here through Japheth Ham and Shem the three sons of Noah now, as we come to chapter 10 and this genealogy of nations or this table of nations, notice here in verses 18 and 19, if you'll go there, we'll just highlight this from this genealogy, verses 18 and 19. At the end of verse 18, having, listed, having talked about Canaan and his children, now we see that the Canaanite clans scattered. Verse 19, And the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon near Gerar as far as Gaza, and then towards Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, and Zeboim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, languages, and their territories and nations. In the middle of this genealogy, drawing our attention again to the distinction, it's so-and-so lived, had this child, had these children died. They had these children died, these children died, these children died. Here in the middle of this genealogy, all of a sudden the brakes are screeched on and we have a discussion of borders. How do borders get into all of this discussion? Obviously, this is the land that is promised to the original readers of this book. The people of Israel are leaving Exodus, they're coming to the new land. And here are the borders of that land. And here is a description in part as to why God wants them to dispossess the people that are there. They have been, for a very long time, the cursed line of the Canaanites. Not the cursed line of Ham, but the cursed line of the Canaanites. And they have demonstrated that curse in their debauched living for numerous generations. But here is, in a sense, an X on the map where God says these borders here is what you've got to watch because here my people will come here my people will take root and here my son will die there's an X on the map for us in Genesis 10 as God promises his people that it is this land where the greatest act of redemption will play out We'll end our review there, and by God's grace, I hope to finish next week through the, the rest of the book, perhaps two more weeks to come, but we get an overview. Let me just review uh, briefly these themes. Are they in your mind? Do they possess your soul? Are they your life? Creation, fall, and two peoples. To whom do you belong? Are you God's child today? 
Do you identify yourself in the midst of this world by understanding that He is the creator, the arbitrator of what you do, what is right and wrong, the Lord of heaven and earth, the creator of all things? Do you understand that our malady is not owing to what others have done wrong to us? It's not owing to something that's happened necessarily in our past as individuals. It's not because of any of environmental matters. Ultimately, our malady is owing to our fall, to our sinfulness, to the fact that we've rebelled against our Creator. And then out of that, those guidelines arise two people, those who in arrogance reject the ways of God and those who in submission follow the ways of God. We'll look at the epitome of the godless rebellion against on the part of the people who are rejecting God at chapter 11, verses 1 and following. And then we look, as you'll notice there, chapter 11, verses 10 and following, at the line of Shem, leading us through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and ultimately to our Messiah. Let's bow for prayer. We thank you, Lord, for this review, which I trust will help us to gain a sense of uh, the flow of this tremendous book and how important it is to us. I pray, God, that you would be honored, exalted, and praised as we consider the majesty of your creation, that we would humble ourselves before you as our Creator and Lord, and God, that we would rejoice today that we are your people. What a privilege it is for us to speak those words, and now in prayer I ask you who listen that you would pray and thank the Lord that we're his people. Our Father, this is your world. We are yours. We thank you for rescuing us. And we plead for the day when that theme of light will come to its final consummation when you shine as the light of the eternal city. How we look as we consider in the beginning for the end, when you will reign supreme through all eternity over a sinless, perfect, restored, Edenic condition. To that end we pray, and to that end I pray that we as your people would strive. In Jesus' name, amen.